Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. Uh, pardon me, Daniel chapter 10. Just past Daniel 9. You'll find Daniel after Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel in your Old Testament. We've been working our way through uh, this prophet. And tonight we come to the last section of the book. Uh, chapters 10, 11, 12 are the final vision of uh, this uh, prophet. Uh, begins with a prelude in chapter 10 and ends with, we might say, a postlude at chapter 12, verse 5 and following. And chapter 11 is the bulk of the prophetic word. Uh, but there's, there's a vision tonight as well. And so we're at the introduction of the final section. Let me invite you to cons- hear then uh, the beginning of this last great vision from God uh, to his people and his prophet. Hear now the word of God. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar, and the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth. Nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like burl his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision. But a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel. For from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. And I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I was left there with the kings of Persia. 
came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. Behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would bless us tonight. We would help, help us, we pray, to see your glory uh, lift uh, us up, we pray, and make your face to shine upon us, be gracious to us, teach us your word, help us to see wonderful things in it. And Father, apart from the help of your spirit, uh, we are ignorant and can't understand anything. Grant that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have the beginning of the last great vision. And tonight it emphasizes Uh, Certain things about the nature of reality, it shows that there is more going on uh, than we could ever imagine or have ever seen with our own eyes. There is a great spiritual conflict at work in the world, and uh, tonight we hear about it. Uh, Tonight uh, we see that uh, chapter 10, verse 1, Daniel tells us that... uh, that the vision came to him and, and he understood it. And uh, that this vision uh, concerned a great conflict or a great war. It'll be more clear in chapter 11 why he says that. But we see the war behind the war. We see the spiritual forces uh, at work in battle. Before we come in chapter 11 to see how it plays out. Upon the earth, Daniel by this time is an old man. Uh, Cyrus is now in his third year, and what we're going to learn about in the next couple of weeks is that the kings come and kings go, and kings war against kings. Nations rise and nations fall, and nations do battle together, and God's people will suffer until the end. 
And so there will be great, great conflict and great suffering for the people of God. This is not designed, however, to make us morose and depressed. It's actually designed to prepare God's people and to prepare even us in times of conflict and spiritual battle. And so we want to think about this. What does this teach us? What might we learn from this text? I want to highlight three things. I want you to think about, first, God's servant praying for God's people. We see Daniel in prayer. Then I want you to think about God's truth revealed to God's servant. He gets a vision of this figure uh, who speaks to him. And then I want you to think about God's kingdom in conflict with God's enemies. So God's servant, God's truth, and God's kingdom. In the first place, in verses 2 and 3, as well as in 12 through 14, we see Daniel at prayer and we, we see him praying for God's people. And we learn there that prayer is more important than we think. It's more crucial than we imagine. Uh, notice where he begins, verses 2 and 3. He says, I was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no wine, no meat entered my, my mouth. He didn't put on uh, the perfuming oils and comforting oils uh, they would have anointed themselves with. But for three full weeks, he's fasting and mourning. And as verse 12 says, he's praying. Uh, now think about this. He's in the third year of Cyrus. In the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, in the first year in which he reigned over uh, the, the Medes and the Babylonians, he gave a decree that the Israelites could go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. But Daniel has not gone back from Babylon to Jerusalem. He hasn't gone. Why? Why didn't he go? He's waited his entire life since he was a teenager to go home. Why didn't he go? Well, it's, it's a bit speculative. He doesn't explicitly say it may just be because he was in his late 80s or even 90 by the time of this and he was too frail to go. It, it may also be that he knew there would be heavy lifting and hard work as they literally rebuilt a city by hand. And he knew that he needed to stay out of the way and let those who could do that work do it. But it may also be he knew that the best thing he could do to serve the people of God as they went and rebuilt Jerusalem in the temple, was to be on his face before the Lord, praying for them. And so he was interceding. He was calling out. He turned his face to the Lord to seek the Lord and to pray. And he was, he says, fasting, not eating meat, drinking. Uh, why? Because he is deeply concerned for the people of God. He may have been concerned on a variety of counts. On the one hand, far fewer people chose to leave Babylon and go back to their homeland, the promised land, uh, than, than most might have hoped, than certainly a prophet like Daniel would have desired. A very small remnant of people even chose to go back. He may have grieved that the people so cared so little for the restoration of the promised land. Uh, but it also may be uh, Daniel has long been a civil administrator. We don't know if he's continuing in that function at this point, but, but he certainly would have his ears to the ground. Maybe he's learned how the progress of the work in Jerusalem has gone. Uh, that we know that there was tremendous opposition from the nations in and around Israel. They didn't want the Jews to come back and rebuild, and they fought them. 
And there was trouble and there was conflict. And maybe he knows there is trouble for the people of God and I need to pray for them. And so I I just want to pause there and reflect. We can learn a few things from that. Here is a prophet of God praying for the people of God about a work he himself will never see in his lifetime. He is concerned spiritually for the progress of the kingdom of God well beyond his lifetime. Uh, something that he would not enjoy, but he desired that others would enjoy it. And there's, there's a wonderful thing there. Sinclair Ferguson says this, what is so remarkable about Daniel here is the way in which he consecrated himself to advance God's kingdom, even though he was not directly involved in the rebuilding of the temple, nor would he live to see it. And this is the hallmark of true faith and commitment. He believed but did not receive what was promised. He prayed for blessing he would never personally witness. And I want to say, we have a tremendous need in our day and in a very young church, just a few years old, not even established thoroughly, but a church we long to see here a hundred years from now serving and ministering to our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren and our neighbors. We have a tremendous need in this congregation for people who will pray for God's blessing on this work in future time. A man named William Still, you may not know his name, he's a famous pastor in certain tiny circles. Uh, In Scotland, in Aberdeen, when he was a young man, he was called to a congregation. It had had a very liberal, unbelieving ministry for many years. Uh, And when he started the ministry there in the Church of Scotland, you could have counted on your hands the number of evangelical, Bible-believing, gospel-believing ministers uh, in the denomination. And so he went into a difficult situation in a church that was dying in downtown Aberdeen. And after he had been there for a few months, an older lady came to him in the congregation, and she asked him to come by for a visit in her home. And this is what she said to him. When I called, she said to me, quoting him, I have been praying for many years that God would send a man who was a little bit out of the usual to do a work for the Lord here in Aberdeen. And from what I hear, you are the answer to my prayer. And she told me this, he says, I have been a widow for 17 years. Formerly, I taught a Bible class for over 100 girls, many of whom have since gone on to the mission field. And yet it was only after my dear husband died and I was by then rather frail and only able to sit by my fireside and pray that the Lord gave me this burden. It was as if he said to me, you have served me long with these girls and in your local congregation, but this is the task of your life reserved for you in your 80s. You have to pray something for Aberdeen. Well, Mr. Still ministered in that congregation for over 60 years and nurtured in the prayer meeting and by his preaching a whole generation of godly believing ministers in the Church of Scotland, men like Sinclair Ferguson and others, uh, if you know that name. And it was in part the faithful prayers of an old woman asking God's blessing on a church she wouldn't even live to see in this world. We need to be like that, friends. 
We, we need to be, have that kind of spiritual care and concern. Uh, E.M. Bounds, in his classic work on prayer, said this, The church is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men, for people are God's methods. The church is always fascinated by what's the next project or uh, what's the next program we can do to make things happen. And God is looking for people to pray and ask the Lord to do what only the Lord can do. And that is what this woman was like. And that is what Daniel is doing at the very end of his life. And God tells Daniel in response to his prayer in verse 12 that your words were heard and I have come in response to them. This visitor has come because he's been praying. So you can imagine Daniel, uh, one week goes by and he gets no answer to his morning and praying. Two weeks go by, no answer. Three weeks go by and he hasn't received an answer. And why is that? Why is it? It is because sometimes God makes us wait for his answers. 21 days go, go before this being appears three weeks and it may be for some of us we'll pray 21 years or a lifetime and not see in our lifetime the answer to our prayers but we must keep praying uh john flavel in the 1650s was preaching one sunday in his church in dartmouth uh, and a 15 year old boy named luke smith was in the congregation and at the end of his sermon Flavel prayed and asked God's blessing on that message. And soon afterwards, that young teenager, Luke Scott, set sail from Dartmouth and emigrated to New England, to North America. And when he was 100 years old, and the horror of dying, apart from faith in Christ, was so impressed on his heart, he remembered 85 years before the sermon preached to him. And it allowed him to shake off his guilty fears as he trusted in the bleeding sacrifice who died to set him free and gave him hope. Flavel had no idea when he preached that message or prayed the Lord would do something with it that it would take 85 years in one boy's life to see fruit. But that is the way sometimes God works. So let's be people who believe that we have not received and wait in expectation before the throne of grace, to see God do great things. So that's the first thing you see here. The, the heart of Daniel, his care and concern for the people of God and his prayers on their behalf. Now the second thing I want you to see is God's truth revealed to God's servant. And you, be, you begin to see that in verse 4 all the way through 19. It's the bulk of the passage. And what we see here is that the truth is more devastating than we think it is. Um, Daniel has a vision Who is it that he sees, beginning at verse 4? Some think it's the angel Gabriel. We've encountered him previously in the book of Daniel. But if that's the case, it would have been easy, very simple to say, this was again Daniel. So that seems unlikely. Some think that this is some other angelic being, even an archangel, uh, or, or one of the four living creatures. Uh, One of those that we meet in the opening chapter of the book of Ezekiel. Some representative of God, some angelic creature on God's behalf. 
Others think here that what we're really seeing is a, a pre-incarnate Christ. Uh, the second person of the Godhead manifesting himself in visible form to his servant Daniel. And there are reasons to think it's that based on the parallel in Revelation chapter 1. If you've read where John has a vision and he beholds in glory Christ walking amidst his church. And much of what is said here is said there. But not all and not entirely. Um, what does he see? Look at verse 4. Behold a man clothed in linen, with a belt of fine gold around his waist. His body is like burl, face like the appearance of lightning, eyes like flaming torches, arms and legs like that gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words is like the sound of a multitude. Uh, it's some glorious figure representing God. Think how important it was for him to have this vision. Uh, He's an old man. He's not in Jerusalem. He's not helping with the rebuilding. He's, He's heard about opposition to the work. He's not going to himself get to experience the renewal of temple worship, the reintroduction of the sacrifices where where people got comfort the assurance of forgiveness, where they were told, you are at peace with God and God is at peace with you. Eat in my presence, God said to his people, in those sacrifices. We will commune with one another. He doesn't get to experience any of that. And yet, though, he cannot go where the priest will one day be restored. Yet a priest or a priestly figure comes and appears to him. That's the meaning here of the linen garments. These are the garments of the priest. And so what a wonderful thing it is that while he can't go there, God's messenger uh, goes to him and brings him the reminder that there is a priest before God. There is forgiveness and peace with God uh, through this priestly figure. And more than that, of course, there's the, the face like lightning the eyes like blazing torches, uh, the voice uh, like the sound of a thunderous multitude, like, like uh, being in Razorback Stadium with 75,000 voices uh, so loud you can't think straight. So is the sound of this voice. This certainly would have impressed upon him the, the, the majesty and the glory and the splendor and the greatness and the power of God. And how important that would have been for him. Uh, Things are bleak. There's going to be war, trouble, distressed times, opposition to the rebuilding. His earthly pilgrimage is going to be short. And uh, sometimes what we need when we face these obstacles and frustrations is not so much to know the mind of God as it is to behold the majesty of God. Sometimes we don't have to have God detail his plan to us, but we need to have a a vision of his power, confidence uh, of his grace and his glory. And uh, it's, it's as if God is saying to him, this is who you serve, Daniel. And Daniel says, I saw him who I serve, whatever he has decreed 
for the future. And that would have encouraged his soul. Notice, though, how hard it was for him to see and hear. Notice how he responded to this vision, uh, certainly not with flippancy. Uh, He doesn't act like, well, I had an audience with the man upstairs, uh, the great benevolent Santa Claus in the sky. Uh, No, it was awesome and fearsome for him to meet God. At verses 7 and 8, he's with friends when this happens. And uh, his friends don't see the vision, but they sense it. And they tremble with fear, and they're so anxious about it, they flee and hide themselves. Uh, Yet Daniel gets to see the vision, but how does he respond? Well, look at the language, verses 8 through 17. Verse 8, no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed. He becomes pale in color, and he falls on his face. In deep sleep, at at verse 10, it says, A hand touched me, but it set me trembling on my knees. And at verse 11, when he spoke, I I stood up trembling. And at verse 15, when he spoke, I turned my face to the ground and was mute. And verse 16, by reason of the vision, pains came upon me, and I had no strength. And at verse 17, he says, No strength remains in me, and I have no breath left. Um, he sees God's heavenly representative and he is left helpless, sleeping, shaking, speechless, and breathless. Pause there. Sometimes you hear people say things defiantly like, when Jesus comes back, I've got a thing or two I'm going to tell him. But it will not be like that at all. When the Apostle John, the well-beloved Apostle who leaned his head on the breast of Jesus at the Last Supper, the dear friend, when he saw in that vision in Revelation 1, the glorified Christ, he fell at his feet as though dead. And he had to be told, don't fear. And then lifted to his feet. When Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, when he went into the temple and he says he saw the Lord in his glory seated on his throne and and just the train of his robe filled the temple. He said, woe is me. He called down curses upon himself. He said, because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. This is the way a real encounter with God will will go. It will leave you in awe. It will leave you trembling. It will put you on your knees in humility. And absolutely, this creature or the incarnate Christ, the representative of God, certainly reaches out and lifts him up because God delights not only to humble the proud, but to to uh, exalt the humble. So God will comfort us in the sight of his presence. And, and arise, my soul, arise, shake off your guilty fears, because Jesus has come. But it is no small thing, and no flippant thing, to come into the presence of God. And it left its mark on Daniel. Now, perhaps it's something like what happened to a man named John Bradley 
a different kind of story. Bradley was one of those famous men in the picture of the raising of the American flag on the island of Iwo Jima in World War II. He was a medical corpsman and saw more than his uh, share of gore and the horror of war. He almost never spoke about it at all. His, um, his wife says on their first date, for about seven or eight minutes, he, he just said a few very sort of disinterested, dispassionate things about his involvement in the war and never spoke of it again. But she also told her adult son that after they were married in 1946, he, in his sleep, wept every night for four years straight. The agony of his experience had left its mark. So too, in a different way, Daniel is marked. It leaves him weak, breathless, helpless. And God raises him and says, Oh man, greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you. What, what assurance. And God strengthened him in weakness. How should, we, how should we respond to that then? The fact that the truth is more devastating than we know. Well, we ought to respond in gratitude. We ought to be thankful. Think of the book that we have, the stories it tells, the experience of those who received it and passed it on. I like to read my Bible sitting in my chair next to the fire with a cup of coffee, you know, in the comforts of my home. I like to read my Bible at work propped up, reclined on my chair with my feet on my table with a cup of coffee at my right hand. Where do you like to read your Bible? Drinking coffee, drinking tea, uh, in your bed at night, in the comforts of your home. But think how emotionally and physically wiped out so many of the prophets and apostles were just to receive the word that's passed on to us. It costs them much. To give this to us. Let's treasure what we have been given. So we see uh, prayer is more important than we think. Truth is more devastating than we think. And the final thing we see is history is more complicated than we think. We see God's kingdom in conflict with God's enemies. And it is a spiritual conflict. We see it at verses 12 and 13. And again at verses 20 and 21. Uh, In verses 20 and 21, this being says to Daniel, do you know why I've come to you? And then he doesn't answer that, but he says, but now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. Uh, But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. What's going on here? We are catching a glimpse of the greater and unseen spiritual reality that, that, that stands behind the conflicts of this world. This visitor is uh, telling Daniel, all the way back at 12 and 13, that the moment you began to pray, a word went out and I began to come to you. I left immediately to come to you. And yet, verses 12 and 13, from the first day you set your heart to understand and humble yourself, uh, I, had, I, I came to you, and yet it took 21 days. 
Now, this is not to say, of course, that heaven is so far away it takes 21 days to arrive on the earth. That is not the point of this. The point is this heavenly visitor encountered an obstacle and was delayed in coming on account of the opposition of the prince of Persia, it says. Now, don't misunderstand. This is not uh, the, the king of Persia, the human king of Persia, who brings the opposition. Though, backstory, we know that Cyrus is the head of the Persian Empire. He's been ruling now for three years. He himself has gone away on a visit and he has left his own son in charge in this region of the world, his son Cambyses, who will eventually uh, take over for him. And while Cyrus, as I said before, decreed that the Jews could go back to Jerusalem and rebuild, his son Cambyses uh, over, or, you know, undermined that decree and forbade it while he was in charge. And he, he wouldn't uh, allow that to happen. He opposed that work. So there is an earthly opposition from this underling uh, in the realm. And yet, and yet Daniel is not saying, uh, this vision is not saying that this heavenly visitor has come and was opposed by a human earthly king. No, it is the, a prince, an angelic prince, but not an unfallen, godly, good angelic prince, but rather a fallen and demonic prince who is thwarting the purposes of God, aiming to, aspiring to, bring opposition to God's work. And so we see here the battle of, of angels and demons. Um, these fallen angels are real. The Bible says that Jesus is now exalted over every rule and authority and power and dominion uh, as he uh, now exalted rules and reigns over all things. God has always been, always been in authority over angels and demons. But in his providence and in his plan and his purposes, he permits a spiritual war and conflict while he allows earthly human war and conflict. And so the battle rages and uh, Daniel has been praying and an answer has been coming, but not as quickly as Daniel would have hoped because this king of Persia, uh, this prince of Persia has been in opposition and after him will come a prince of Greece. Uh, And so, uh, so we could learn a lot of things from that. But we should certainly learn this, that uh, what we see with our eyes is not all there is. And what the historians tell us is true is not all that's true. Uh, History is spiritual. And we think history is defined by, you know, Washington and Moscow and Tokyo and London and all the great capital cities of the world. But there is a bigger battle going on behind the struggles of human society. Uh, The old Dutch prime minister, Abraham Kuyper, he was not only a prime minister, but he was a theologian and a godly man, said at the beginning of the last century, the beginning of the 1900s, if once the curtain were pulled back and the spiritual world behind it came into view, 
it would expose to our spiritual vision a struggle so intense, so convulsive, so sweeping, everything within its range, that the fiercest battle ever fought on earth would seem by comparison a mere game. Not here, but up there is where the real conflict is engaged in spiritual realms and our earthly struggle is a kind of backlash. It is real. It is genuine. But there's more going on. The Bible says for Christians, uh, not therefore to take up arms against our human neighbors and even enemies. But Paul at the end of Ephesians in Ephesians 6 says our battle is not with flesh and blood but against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his mind. You're in a war, friends. And if you don't know you're a soldier in that war, you will be unarmed. You will be unprepared. How often those of us who know that we're in a war act like we aren't. And how often we suffer on account of it. And don't do all the good we could if we acted like we were in one. The last thing I want you to see in this is the fact that, you know, Daniel sees this great vision. And his own friends fled from him. He was left, so we might think, all alone. And yet Daniel was uh, never less alone in his whole life. That God was for him and not against him that God's heavenly representatives had come to aid and minister to him, just as Hebrews says, that is the purpose of angels. They, have come, they come to serve the saints. And so he was alone, but he was never, uh, uh, never less alone in all his life. And so too with us, he never leaves us or forsakes us. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would uh, impress your word and its truth upon our hearts. You would shake us out of our slumber, that you would make us spiritually minded, uh, that you would grant us to believe in that which we cannot even see, and uh, humble us before your throne of grace and teach us to serve your church uh, for her future good. In this great battle, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.